Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. For the past couple of months, we've been looking at the lives of people from the Old Testament. We've looked at certain aspects of their lives, examples to follow, examples to avoid. Today we're going to look at a life to avoid. The man we're going to look at today wanted to make it big in the world. He was a man who wanted to be successful. He ended up rising to a position of prominence in the big city. He wanted to take advantage of all this world had to offer. He was a man who descended into worldliness. His name was Lot. Lot was a nephew of Abram. Abram had a brother named Haran who ended up dying relatively young, but not before having Lot as a son. There's not really any hint of Lot's character initially. At first, we just see him as a guy along for the ride. It says Terah took Abram and him to Haran. After Terah dies, Abram and Lot set off together for Canaan. But unlike the case of Abraham, there is no command from the Lord to Lot to set off to Canaan. It simply said in verse 4 of Genesis, And Lot went with him. Now, did Abraham have to take Lot with him? I don't think so. At least by verse 4, Abram's father Terah had died. Abraham was the one clearly in charge. So why did Abraham take Lot with him? Well, it could be that after Haran had died, Abraham felt a certain need to be a father figure of Lot. Or it could be that Abram thought it was safer to stick together with another family member if he was going off into some new unknown place. Doesn't sound like a good idea to go off with another believer if you're going into some place you don't know about? Well, not if the brother you're with is not following the Lord. In that case, you're better off just going by yourself and the Lord. You're never really alone anyway. It's in chapter 13 we first begin to see Lot's selfishness and his love of the world. Beginning in verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, and, my, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, 
and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Now, really, it should have been Lot taking the lower place. He was, after all, he was a younger man. He was Abraham's nephew. Abraham was the one in charge. But looking out for himself, looking out for number one, was more important to him than showing proper respect to his uncle. So he took the best for himself and left the leftovers for Abraham. Going on, verses 12 to 13, we see, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Well, we see Lot, he begins his approach to Sodom. He's pitching his tent in the best pastures for his flocks and herds. But why did he go near Sodom if he knew it was such a bad place? He loved the world. We don't know when Lot got married, but maybe he justified in his mind that he was doing the best thing for his family. He thought perhaps moving to the big city, he could provide the very finest things for his wife. He could provide his family with the very best things, the tastiest foods, get a nice big house. His kids would get an education and a good school. And as believers, we might try to rationalize this thing in our own mind, this move. We could even try to justify a move to such a place by thinking, well, you know, if I take that high-paying job in that city, maybe the Lord could even use me as a witness there. Problem is, if it's not the Lord's will for you to go there, he's not going to use you there. And believers are still tempted by this all the time. Now, most of us here at some point, we've been looking for a job. Now, let's say you get a really good job offer. You get an offer for a salary in the triple digits or huge retirement benefits. You get a whole month of vacation to start with. There's full health care coverage for all your family. Only problem is, it's no place like Sodom. Now, perhaps Lot thought he would only stay there for a little while. You know, go to the outskirts of the city, acquire some wealth there for a year, and then leave. Get in, get rich, get out. But in chapter 14, we see Lot makes a transition from dwelling just outside Sodom to being an actual inhabitant of the city. Verse 12 of chapter 14, just uh, part of it says, it refers to Lot as being Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom. And then the next time we see Lot in chapter 19, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. When a person is sitting in the gate, that person has a position of prominence in the city. That person is a judge of the city. Now, from the world's perspective, Lot was doing good. He was probably collecting a high salary in his position, 
He had started off as a wandering herdsman. He had at least a short time as an inept soldier. And now here he was, he was a judge in a big city. That sounds decent. Compared to Abraham, he was looking pretty good. Abraham just looked like a guy wandering in the wilderness in comparison. I can tell you, though, deep down inside, Lot was not a happy man. We'll look at it later, but it says in Second Peter that he tormented his soul day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. It pained him to live in Sodom. One has to wonder, what did Lot do to get his position? How far was he willing to go to just advance himself in life and get ahead? The people of Sodom are described as exceedingly sinful. In a city where all the people are this way, the law code is probably very perverted. Lot might have been involved in enforcing laws that he knew were not right or making judgments they knew the Lord was not pleased with. One thing's for sure, he compromised himself and his relationship with the Lord to get to where he was. Now, how far he participated in the sins of the people of Sodom, we don't know. As believers, we're faced with the pressure to compromise a lot. It can start in a very subtle way. Gossip is one of those sins that ensnares people very easily. Say you're in a group of people, and they start talking unfavorably about someone who's not there. Now, do you partake in that conversation? Do you join in the backbiting? Let's say someone tells a crude joke. Do you laugh along with the crowd? Let's take things a step further. Let's say someone tells a joke about the Lord. And the people around you start laughing like it's the funniest thing they ever heard. Do you laugh along? Let's say someone takes the Lord's name in vain in front of you. Do you stand up for the Lord? Or do you just stay quiet because you don't want to stand up from the crowd? The world tries to conform the believer to its mold. It squeezes the believer, tries to erode a believer's testimony. Every believer is swimming against the current. The thoughts occur to you at some point, you don't want to stand out, do you? Isn't it nice just to blend in, just to fit in, not to be bothered? But the fact is, a believer should stand out. People should think of you as weird. Turn to, just for a moment, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. People should think you are strange because of the life you lead for the Lord. It's sad, but just looking at Lot from the Old Testament, you would not have known he was a believer. He was unrecognizable as a believer. The only way we know he was saved is from what's said about him later in the New Testament. Let's just take a turn to one book to the right, to Second Peter, chapter two, verses six to eight. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed for the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God calls Lot righteous three times in just two verses. I ask you, do people around you know you're a believer? Do your relatives, do your neighbors, do your classmates, do your coworkers, do they know that you call Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Or do you live in such a way that when people do find out you're a believer, they say, whoa, I didn't know he was a Christian. I would never have thought that. (laughs) That's not the kind of testimony you want to have. Now, not all of us are outgoing people who find it very easy to be vocal in our surroundings, whether it's our neighborhood or the workplace. You know, I'll put myself in that category. But there's still a lot of ways you can let people know that you're a believer. You don't let yourself get caught up in the sins of the people around you. You know, people are starting to gossip or people are starting to turn the conversation towards some crude humor. You know, tell them, let them know that's not okay with you. Or if someone takes the name of the Lord in vain in front of you, don't just let it slide by. Let the person who's talking to you know that you're taking, that they're taking the name of someone you love in a way you don't like, or you don't appreciate. Anyway, turn back to Genesis, back to chapter 19. As the chapter goes on, Lot's selfishness really begins to come out. Continuing in verse 2, And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house, and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now at first glance, Lot might appear to be hospitable. But the real reason for him taking the two angels in is because he knows the neighborhood. He knows what the men of Sodom would do to two people that are staying in the open square. Maybe 
he had even seen it happen before. Verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Lot shuts the door behind him. Now, a lot of awful stuff happens behind closed doors. In this case, Lot did not want anything, anyone inside the house hearing what he was proposing. He had already been entertaining his guests, and probably, as he was hoping, gaining their esteem. And he wasn't doing this because he really cared for them. He cared about his impression before them. He had presented himself to the two angels as hospitable judge and host, and now he was going to go to whatever lengths necessary to keep that image up. And so he uses his two daughters as bargaining chips to the men of Sodom. It's noticeable, too, even though he was a judge in the city, the people of Sodom, they don't respect Lot. He denounces their wickedness, but they totally ignore him. But really, who is he to be calling them wicked when he had invested himself in the wicked city for years and years? Verse 9 we see, And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to sojourn, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. And after the two angels pronounced judgment on the city of Sodom, and Lot tries to warn his, fa- his family, even Lot's own sons-in-law don't respect him. In verse 14 we see, So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be, to be joking. The believer with a poor testimony really has no voice. Say you spend years with your friends in the world, doing everything they do, going to clubs, drinking at the bar, indulging in gossip, watching the bad movies. You never mention the name of God because you don't want to stand out from the crowd. Now, do you think your friends are all of a sudden going to listen to you when you tell them that God is going to judge them and that they need to repent of their sins? No. Maybe Lot had gone for years and years without mentioning the name of God. And so when he does mention the Lord to his sons-in-law, it must have sounded very peculiar. What? He's talking about God? He can't be serious. He must be joking. He's never mentioned God in judgment before. 
poor testimony will completely negate anything you try to say for the Lord. In fact, all you end up doing is dragging the Lord's name in the dirt by associating him with your life. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. Here the Lord was giving him direct command through two angels, and he just sits there. He's like that man who's in the house on fire. The place is going up in smoke, and he just wants to stick around because all the nice stuff he's piled up in his house. The world really had a hold of him. Well, whether Lot wanted to leave or not, the Lord was going to save him. If the Lord had not taken action at this point through the two angels, Lot would have died with the rest of the people in Sodom. The angels literally have to force him out of his own house. Verse 16, And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. As here we learn something about the Lord. The Lord is so merciful with Lot. He's so faithful to this man who is so unfaithful to him. Really, Lot has gone as far away from the Lord as a man could go. But no matter how far you might wander from the Lord, if you're a true believer, you will never lose your salvation, despite how far you might fall into sin. Left to us, we might say, why is the Lord bothering to save this guy? I think anyone else besides the Lord would have given up on Lot by this point. It's quite amazing. Lot succeeds in doing absolutely nothing good in this whole chapter. He's unable to stand up to the men of Sodom who are surrounding his home. He's unable to convince his sons-in-law to leave the city. He's unable to lead his own family out of the city. The one thing he does succeed in doing, though, is getting in the Lord's way when the Lord is judging the cities of the plain. Verse 18. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me, and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Now, did Lot really think he would die if he escaped the mountains? The Lord had just delivered him out of Sodom, through two angels. The Lord wasn't going to let him die in the mountains, especially if that's where he told him to flee to. The Lord had been showing every step of the way that he cared for Lot 
and wanted to save his life. Now, it wasn't that Lot really thought he would die in the mountains. But he, st- he loved the world so much that he wanted to hang on to that little shred of it he could. I mean, Zohar was such a little city. It couldn't be that sinful, could it? Incidentally, the little city of Zoar probably was steeped in sin also. You don't have to turn back there, but looking back to chapter 14 of Genesis, we see the city of Zoar was allied with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in that war mentioned there. And in the verse in Jude, in verse 7 of Jude, we see, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. But once again, the Lord is so merciful with Lot. Going on to verse 21, And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, it's it's in this last part of chapter 19, we get a sad glimpse into the family life of Lot. We don't know much about Lot's wife, but it does seem like he married someone with similar interests. She loved the world. In fact, she loved the world so much She was basically saying God was wrong in judging Sodom by turning back. She never actually left Sodom. She might have left Sodom physically, but her heart had still been in the city. What kind of father was Lot? Now, we already saw from the offer he made of his two daughters to the men of Sodom, Lot did not really love his kids. He loved what the world had to offer more than his kids. It goes back farther, though. If he really loved his children, he would not have been living in a city like Sodom. If you're a parent, you want, your, you want to be raising your kids in a place where you know it won't be corrupted by the people around them. You know, if I were a father, I would want my daughter to be marrying a good guy. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Both his daughters had married men of Sodom, people you would not want your daughter going anywhere near. And as for the character of Lot's daughters themselves, we see from the sins they commit with their father later in the cave that 
the exceeding wickedness and sinfulness of Sodom had corrupted them too. And as for the children of Lot, Moab and Ammon, we know nothing good comes out of them either. The Moabites and the Ammonites cause all kinds of trouble for Israel later on. They're continually Israel's enemies. And it's at this point that Lot disappears. We don't know anything about the later events of his life. Nothing's mentioned about him again. You look later at Abraham and his descendants. You look at a lot of other people through the Old Testament who led lives pleasing or displeasing to the Lord. And we, the Lord reveals what happened to them when they died, where they were buried. But Lot just fades into obscurity. And look at how he began and ended. He went through life looking to advance himself and make it big. You know, see, he started off with a lot of possessions. He had flocks and herds and herdsmen under him. He advanced to the point of being the judge in the big city. But in the last passage, we see him reduced to being a nobody. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his position. He's lost his wife. He's living in a cave. I'll tell you, I visited a cave house in Mexico last year, and it's a miserable existence. He escaped with Sodom with nothing but his two daughters. We don't know when it was, but I think at the end of his, end of his life, just before he was going to meet the Lord, he must have looked back on his life with, with regret. Look at and just regret how he had wasted his life. I'll tell you this morning if you love the world, if you decide to embrace the world as Lot did, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up losing everything, and nothing good will come out of your life. The things of the world are going to disappoint. Every day, we're bombarded with things of the world. Every day, we're presented with a choice. Will I invest my thoughts, my energy, my time, my resources in the things of the world or the things of the Lord? The world seems to offer a great deal. Fame and power, wealth, Acceptance, recognition. But if you make yourself wealthy on earth, you're missing out on wealth in heaven. If you're looking for recognition prestige on the earth, well, it might be satisfying for a little while, but really in a hundred years, who's going to care whether you, you got a promotion to this or this position or whether you became president of that, and that organization? What will matter is your place in the kingdom of heaven and the honors you receive from the Lord. Who are you choosing to spend time with? Are you trying to get in with the in crowd? Do some social networking? Try and get some connections? Or are you spending time with the Lord in prayer, the only important person, looking to become more like him? Whether it's your career, whether it's your retirement, 
whether it's that new car, the stocks, the latest movies, they're all going to disappoint. All the things of the world are going to be burned up at some time in the future. Let's turn to First John for a moment, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, we've already talked a lot about how the world exerts its pressure on believers to try to conform them to its own mold. Now, I'd be remiss not telling you about the solution to the problem. So how does a believer keep in shape? How do you fight against the constant pressure the world exerts on you? It's by staying close to the Lord and spending time with Him. True contentment and satisfaction comes from having a relationship with the Lord Jesus. If your attention is taken up with him, the things of the world are not going to matter. If you take a good long look at the Lord and spend some quality time with him, all that the world has to offer is going to appear insignificant. In fact, it's going to appear repulsive. You're not going to want the things of the world at all. There's no need to go after riches in the world. If you're a believer, you're already unbelievably wealthy. God has stated in Ephesians, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you have Christ in you, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you spend time with the Lord, you'll become more like him. Oftentimes, we see people who are good friends we see certain character traits rub off on each other. They become more like each other as time goes on. Proverbs 27, 17 is a good one. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And it's like that between a believer and the Lord. If you're a believer spending time with the Lord, you'll become more like the Lord Jesus in character. You want to get chiseled by him. And then you'll retain that character that the Lord wants you to have and not be conformed to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and Lord, we ask that you would, uh, we, we would be reminded of your presence and we would be reminded, Lord, of Lord, truly, what's truly important in life and that's knowing you. Pray that we, we would we would take this with us as we go back in the world, Lord, that we will not be conformed to the world around us. Praise in Jesus' name.